I'm Elaine Casket, and this is Reboot, your life on tech. If you've been listening along in this special Reboot-linked series of podcasts, we've considered how our digital choices shape our relationships and our humanity at every stage of life. We've talked about how the digital self begins before physical birth, how modern parents care for and monitor their children through the interface, We've talked about social scoring in schools through the use of educational technologies, edtech, and at technoference and intimate relationships, and at the threats to vocational identity, perhaps especially in middle age, that could be posed by certain uses and applications of AI. We've looked at the pros and cons of discovering things about yourself in the twilight of your years, perhaps through commercial genealogy services. And now, as Sinatra says, the end is near, and so we face the final curtain. But what used to be the final curtain, physical death, isn't the final curtain for our social identities any longer. In various ways, our personalities persist in the online environment in influential and consequential ways. These posthumously persistent bits of digital dust are known by a lot of names. I'm going to be referring to them as digital remains. My conversation partners today might prefer something different. We'll see. But the current and future meldings of emergent technologies and digital remains makes this, I think, moment in history particularly interesting as somebody who's studied the intersection of death and the digital for over a decade and a half now. In fact, it was the subject of my previous book, uh, previous to Reboot, which was All the Ghosts in the Machine. And the two women I'm speaking with today have been in this space for a long time too, and there are many more voices joining the call for a greater awareness and action on digital remains. One of those voices is Carl Oman, who was one of the scholars who predicted when the number of dead people on social media would outnumber the living. He has a new book coming out, The Afterlife of Data, What Happens to Your Information When You Die and Why You Should Care. And he makes the powerful argument that this is everybody's concern. That's you listening to this. And in that book, he says, even if you don't plan on dying anytime soon, and even if you may not personally care about what anyone does to your data after your death, the future of the past is or should be the concern of everyone. So this is more than a podcast episode about grief or bereavement or our personal relationships with individual death. It's about far more than that, as we'll see. But nevertheless, this bears a mention. This podcast episode does deal with death. Some of the things we speak about in it, the episode might feel very personal to you, or it might prompt raw emotion. Do take care of yourself while listening, but I encourage you not to use the possibility of discomfort as a reason to avoid listening, unless you're feeling particularly vulnerable. We do a lot of avoiding thinking about death, perhaps our own deaths in particular, but this is a moment that we need to engage. So without further ado, I'd like my guests today to introduce themselves. And can we start with you, Deborah? Good morning, Elaine. How lovely to see you again uh, and chat to you. I am Dr. Deborah Bassett. I am the author of uh, You Only Live Twice, a book, uh, The Creation and Inheritance of Digital Afterlife. Um, I uh, wrote the book following my PhD research into it. 
looking at the whole spectrum of digital afterlives from the service providers to the digital creators, those creating these memories and messages, and to those that will inherit them. Uh, and I interviewed people from each of the three different uh, shareholders, as Carl calls them as well, Carl Omanu, who you recently yeah, uh, shareholders, you just absolutely. mentioned. We're stakeholders. We're all stakeholders, although some of us might not realize it. Yeah. And yes. I believe you're recently, um, you're, you've taken up a new post and can be found at the Open University uh, in the UK, correct? That's correct. I'm a visiting fellow over there and I'm so proud to be back with them. So it's lovely, yes. Oh, congratulations. And Adina. Thanks very much, Elaine. Lovely to chat to you and Deborah. I look forward to sharing more detail. But for now, uh, Dr. Adina Harbinya, I'm a reader at Aston Law School. And I worked in this space of, well, let's say digital death in inverted comas, because we can discuss whether that's the right term or digital immortality, etc. Digital legacy, as for lawyers, might be, might be a better term for about more than a decade. And my book, uh, Digital uh, Death, Digital Assets and Postmortem Privacy, published last year by the Edinburgh University Press, is also, like Deborah's, a result of my uh, PhD and a quite a long um, research that is sort of my one of my main research trends. So I'm really uh, still very active in, in, in this field and uh, have a couple of ongoing projects that we can discuss. But I think for the intro, that's probably enough, unless you have some questions, Elaine. Well, I mean, what I would really like to ask, because you both referred to the work that you've published as being the culmination, for that moment anyway, of an ongoing passion and ongoing research projects and interest. And I am of the opinion, as I said in the intro, that this is a really interesting moment with a lot happening in this area that we all three are interested in. And I can certainly share why I think that is. But first, I wanted to invite both of you to see if you have a similar opinion from your respective positions, sociological and legal, or whatever <laughs> vantage point you choose, really. Um, do you think this is an interesting moment uh, for our area of research? And if so, why? Um, Deborah, what about you first? And then we'll just kind of have a natural conversation. Sometimes we might even like jump in and interrupt each other and that's cool, but let's do this. Yeah. What do you think, Deborah? An interesting moment? I think it's a very interesting moment. And I think in your book, in, in Reboot, the book, you were talking about the fact that Jack Dorsey, who at that point owned Twitter, had decided to uh, turn off the um, profiles that hadn't been used. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was an outpouring of people that said, no, 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 I use this. I use this as, as part of, of bereavement. And Mr. Dorsey said, oh, we didn't realise this. We're sorry. We hadn't considered it and backpedaled on it. Of course, then we have a change of ownership at X, formerly known as Twitter, and of course, the new owner, Mr. Musk, doesn't really care whether or not people have had the uh, profiles of their bereaved. He, he isn't interested. You know, I, amongst lots of other people, have been asking for just a reconsideration, just an acknowledgement of what is happening out there. And I think this is what will happen. You talk about it in the book where you say about um, the storage issue, you know, the storage issue will become 
more important to the tech companies than the sensitivity of, of, of how people are using uh, the, um, in inverted commas, data. You know, you and, and I and many other people know that it's more than ones and zeros. It's more than data for people. Mm. Um, but uh, when they're threatening to, 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 to switch them off, which they are, which they're doing. Um, so there's a change in how the tech companies are looking at it. And it's, it's up to, if you like, people like us and some of the fantastic researchers out there to put um, how much these, uh, th these memories and messages to get over to these tech companies, what they mean. Um, and I think that that is that is a battle that's that's coming to head coming to a head now. This is mixed up with so many interesting aspects. And the, the thing is about the area of death in the digital is that tails off in so many directions that even just off of your comment there, I've got <laughs> 20 different thoughts. One of them being that, of course, the irony is that Mr. Musk, as you so charmingly referred to him, um, is uh, interest is one of the entrepreneurs, uh, who, CEOs who's interested in uploading himself and, and, as, and has an enterprise himself of uh, basically continuing on at infinitum into the future, Mr. Musk forever, uh, by being able to produce essentially an immortal replica of himself if reports are to be believed. But certainly he's he's actively working on these projects um, and has expressed interest in other entrepreneurs, sort of uh, brain uploading kinds of projects. Um, and yes, the shift in ownership shows that, you know, Anything can happen with even a big platform that seems like it's too big or too entrenched to die. We are seeing examples of that not being the case. What the future of X is, is far from certain. And so the data that we've become to rely on as always being there um, is by no means guaranteed to always be there. There was a p weird point at which we apparently started counting on social media companies who weren't created as digital legacy companies to preserve uh, our uh, loved one's data ad infinitum. So this default memorialization by default thing when people, when companies decide not to do that, citing storage or remit or any other reason, there seems to be quite a lot of outcry, which leads me to wonder, yeah, at what point do we start to think that this was their job to do this for us? Um, and why do we trust them to, or why did we ever trust them to look after this material in those ways? So there's so many issues um, to consider. And, and of course, Twitter, unlike Facebook, never really developed a coherent memorialization policy at all. They said that that was in the offing, but then turned out uh, there were big changes afoot at uh, Twitter that we all know about. What about you, Adina? Do you think this is an interesting moment? Oh, definitely. And I agree agree with Deborah and you, of course, but I'll add a, another thing to a mix. And you do talk about that in your in your chapter on Digital Afterlife in the book, um, the, the question of ghost bots or the question of generative AI, large language models, and the emergence of these technologies in the public, the pop popularization that happened in the recent year. And I think that also transpired into the digital afterlife or digital death sphere. And we've seen quite a few new services that uh, promised to 
recreate the deceased and promised a form of a digital afterlife using these uh, generative AI and more simpler uh, ver versions of, of AI uh, and machine learning, of course. And uh, some of those we discussed in our, in our article, uh, Governing Ghostbots, that we published this year. But at the time of writing, there wasn't this um, huge um, news coverage of chat GP, uh, GPT-3 and 4, for example, in the news. So we didn't really cover a lot of that in the article. And we did look at it from, from a legal perspective. And I think from the legal perspective generally, this is also very interesting times because many countries are considering whether they should regulate AI generally. So like the AI Act in the EU and the consultations that the government um, has conducted in the UK, suggesting that we should take a lighter approach to regulating AI, that we shouldn't adopt a statute, but we should, you know, let the AI develop and not stifle innovation. And that's, of course, generally for, for the AI technologies, but also applies to the uh, digital reincarnations or ghost bots or however you want to call them. So for now, just to give you an example, what the AI AI Act in the EU might mean for, for those uh, services like uh, termite AI or some of the attempts in, in metaverses uh, that um, people have developed services to, to promise avatars that would live on post-mortem as well. So uh, for, for the AI Act, um, I think those, those would fall in, in the category of limited risk uh, AI. And mostly uh, requirements would include transparency, so risk assessments, so nothing really strong in terms of in terms of reassurances and safeguards for well uh, the users who will uh, be deceased one day, unfortunately, but also for their grieving families and and the next of kin. So I think for for the legal landscape, this is also a very very interesting times in terms of what we have is an emerging regulation, but also what we have in the UK as as pretty much no regulation approach and what this will mean for the industry of ghost bots as as we call it call them in the article yeah because of course emerging technologies and emerging regulation go hand in hand and oftentimes the regulation is the one that's behind the technology in that regard when we talk about ai regulation it's such a contested issue isn't it because there's the regulation of development innovation activity, but then there's also regulation of uses and applications. And I, I find the assignment of limited risk to the data of the deceased or to the development of ghost spots really interesting because um, it makes me wonder how they assess risk. When they did GDPR, what year was GDPR again? Was that 2019? 16, 16. 16, sorry. So when, yes. the, when, the, when the general data protection regulation came out in the EU, as we three all know, they kind of just swished aside the whole question of the day of the deceased. They were like, oh, this doesn't really cover that. Member states, you figure it out. And mm -hmm. everybody in our community was like, oh, no, this really actually needs attention. And it's probably a messier landscape out there now because of the fact that that can was kicked down the road. But I kind of have this feeling that we keep on underestimating or the regulators keep on underestimating or missing out on the near-term uses and applications of the data of the deceased so that it's not a very strong stand that's being taken, not strong enough. I don't know. You're both nodding. So tell me about your nods. Deborah? 
Well, I think Adina and I were on similar wavelengths here when we both uh, separately uh, thought that there need, needed to be something in regulations to say about the data of the dead. I think, Adina, please correct me here. It was yours, do not bot me. Yes, that was in the uh, governing Ghostbusters articles. Uh, do not bot me clause in a will that a person yes. could, uh, include. Yes, do not well, bot me. It's so similar, isn't it, to the writers saying, "Do not use my books." Um, yeah. And yeah, the Atlantic just published a database where if you're a writer, if you're an author, you can look up to see whether your book was one of the however many hundreds of thousands of books that were used to sort of train a particular AI. The SAG AFRA, uh, after a, a actor strike, you know, a part of they were concerned with digital likeness there, although they weren't sure if they were concerned about um uh, posthumous uh, kind of ongoing acting career and likeness being used post-mortem or not. But I mean, it's kind of in line with some of those other things yeah. that we're concerned with now. Yes. So De Deborah, continue. So, sorry, I interrupted you. Sorry, sorry. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so I came up with the idea of digital do not reanimate, which is a DDNR. So it's it's a sort of I was looking at it from because people know what a DNR is. A lot of people know what a DNR is uh, in the UK. So I thought if we had a DDNA, DDNR, digital do not reanimate. And again, it's just very difficult because this is all part of I wrote a voluntary code of conduct for the industry. So um, this voluntary code of conduct is you know, it's not legally binding, they don't even have to read it. But some companies are looking at it and going, yeah, this is perhaps something that we could look at. It's meant really to say to some of these, um, these providers, have you thought about digital afterlife? Because you'll be surprised how many uh, founders go, oh, Oh, well, we hadn't actually thought about the people who were going to inherit this, um, these memories and messages and these, uh, these creations afterwards. They're doing it because they're, you know, they can. They're interested in the technology, not interested in the bereaved who inherit them afterwards. So I came up with DDNR, which is in the Voluntary Code of Conduct. But, you know... Unless the, the, the service providers are interested in what happens to the data afterwards. But the DDNR was really meant for, I know I've created this, this uh, data that the that, that I have, say if you created a bot of yourself. But there's a difference between what Adina is talking about with the, the ghost bots and what I talk about as digital zombies. So the ghost bots are what people create themselves and then they cut then, then, then they appear after they die. With the digital zombies, it's where they are reanimated to do things that they didn't do in life, to say things that they wouldn't have said in life. So like you, you are, yeah. Absolutely. So these zombies, and it's these rogue zombies because they won't have a host once that person's died. So they're a bot when they're alive, a ghost, a, a bot being generated. But then there should be something whereby you can say, that's great. I, I don't mind being interacted, but I don't want to be fundamentally deep faked. Afterwards, now how you actually do that in your this is Adina's 
sphere. Uh, but I, I, you know, you can't. I know, I, I know that we can't do it. I just think that some of these things may make the uh, service providers think about what they're creating. Yes. And and, we're, and and you use the word inherit, which I'll pick up in a minute. But I mean, you're talking about something that I think is really fundamentally important for people to realize is that I feel like these days, data rights and identity rights go hand in glove, you know, sort of data rights increasingly are identity rights because so much of our identity is captured and because technologies that are increasingly accessible allow deep fakes to happen, which is consequential in life, of course, but equally perhaps consequential in death, maybe not for the deceased, obviously, but for people who might have some kind of stake or for the estate or ways in which the dead can be puppeteered or zombified for a number of different purposes. Some of those are about grief or bereavement. And we should probably talk about just to help the uninitiated understand some of this stuff, some of the examples. There are things that are orientated towards grief, such as Project December, which advertises itself as, okay, uh, like the famous Be Right Back episode of Black Mirror, input um, all of the data that you have uh, about the person, and then you have a chat bot that actually disintegrates or and dies eventually, or deteriorates and dies, but that for a while you have a conversation with. But there, there are there are things like that for the bereaved. But then there are also reasons to deep fake someone who's deceased that are a little bit more sinister or nefarious for and did any impersonation purposes for fraud purposes. Um, there was a episode, I feel like I'm going to offer a spoiler here for people who haven't seen the fourth season of Succession. Uh, but there's an episode in Succession where a deceased CEO, uh, his video footage is taken and altered to make it seem as though he was 100% behind some initiative that his successors are proposing. And this is broadcast on the big screen with it being faked that he said something that he didn't say. And there are so many increasingly um, convincing examples of these kinds of technologies being used for these kinds of reasons. Does uh, Adina, do you have some additional examples of ways that... Um, this can play out uh, the ways that data can be used um, that uh, people should stand up and pay attention to (laughs) other examples like these. So thanks, Elaine. I think just to add to what Deborah has said about digital ghostbots and digital zombies, I think uh, how we conceive digital ghostbots in the article is quite a, uh, they could evolve evolve to become digital zombies because, as we know, the technology can uh, be become quite uncontrollable and take off different forms and become rogue as well uh, and unpredictable in many ways. So the ghosts can become zombies and 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 what, whatever not. So I think for your first example of uh, the the Black Mirror episode, uh, be right back. Uh, and that use case where perhaps, and that's your territory much more than mine in terms of how that helps the bereaved and, you know, uh, the good uh, use cases of, of those of those uh, ghost bots, well, or, or bots uh, generally. I think that that also can go really wrong and some of that was seen in the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we can't really clearly say these are the good use cases without 
very serious implications and consequences. And some of those can be emotional, and we mentioned those as well in our in our article. Uh, the first one we discussed are the emotional emotional harm to uh, to the families uh, and the loved ones. And the second one is the one that you uh, also mentioned uh, just mentioned about uh, economic harms, as we call them more more, more broadly, because we lawyers will like to talk about harms, and then if something is harmful, we should regulate it, criminalize or, or uh, regulate it in other ways. So uh, in terms of economic harms more generally, we do talk about fraud quite a lot, but also about deception more generally, as, as you mentioned, uh, the, the succession episode, that would be one, one example of deception, but also deception used for very uh, sort of uh, a basic economic reasons such as advertising to the living and um, using using representations of their loved ones or someone they knew to sell them different products uh, but that we also talk about harms that that could uh, include defamation and harmful communications that that those bots uh, could uh, could inflict on on the living uh, generally, and then uh, of course there is a question of liability there because as as we know uh, the bots will not have legal personality that we could then um, consider liable and sue for for those actions. Or who do we sue? Do we sue the developers? Do we sue the users? You know, those who have put them uh, into into in trade and sold them. Uh, so there's all sorts of uh, very very interesting uh, legal questions there. I think, but uh, as Deborah said, uh, we uh, with our proposals, hers and ours, uh, they they can't be enforced especially in the UK, because we are so behind so many other jurisdictions in doing anything about that. Uh, we do, we retain the definition of, of personal data being those of the living individuals. So we exclude the disease completely from the data protection regime. Um, do, do, do not both clauses and other clauses cannot be enforced. And that's the question of the Wills Act and the succession law that's also been reformed for for a number of years now and and again that's that's a very late law reform that we've been uh, talking about quite quite a lot so the uk is is uh, very much behind and i think uh, as as you did mention uh, gdpr uh, opened up some possibilities that member states in the eu have taken and uh, they have uh, envisaged protections of the disease data and extension of some uh, data subject rights like the right to be forgotten, the right to data portability, the right to access so that the next of kin could access some of the data or could use some of those rights under GDPR and the national national laws. And just a piece of, uh, I think, very new information is that um, we've just we're just starting a European project uh, under the European Law Institute to draft a, dra a model uh, rules for the EU on uh, digital remains and digital succession. So that's quite an exciting project that I'm leading with Professor Antoine uh, Egemann from uh, Switzerland and the team of five of us, all of us lawyers, but we have other other colleagues on, on the advisory board. And I think uh, what we're going to aim to produce is a set of nuanced rules that, well, if the EU legislator decides to use, could help maybe uh, resolve some of, some of the issues that we discussed and others that we haven't touched upon yet.
Yes. And we we need a lot of help. <laughs> we need that model law, it's kind of like the model laws, I guess, that they have in the United States that a lot of the states yeah, have uh, exactly. taken up, you know, but, you know, then there's this question of dignity. And basically what we're saying here is that considerations of dignity prevent various harms or various interferences with physical bodies or kind of physical <laughs> kind of remains. But at the moment in the regulatory landscape, people can really go to town on digital remains and, uh, and w- which in some ways are much more reflective of personhood than the physical remains are. And there's all sorts of things that we could do to them and ways that they can be used, exploited, monetized and those those are there are a lot of ways that that can be done but i've become increasingly interested in the prospect of the potential for dead labor like literal because i feel like in a knowledge economy you know the 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 knowledge and the labor of the past is concretized or coalesced in this data that we leave behind so that you can m- marry up I don't know the whole catalog of a professor's video lectures and all of their books and all of their articles with a, a with artificial general intelligence and have that professor working forever or CEOs that are working with entrepreneurs to hang on to the reins of power at least as a consultant after they've gone you know retaining all of their old biases and prejudices and problematic behaviors, perhaps, who knows, you know, so dead labor and the question of whether dead labor could be deployed in a way that's cheaper than using people from the younger generation or up and coming people, I think they could really have a stultifying, stultifying, stagnating effect in terms of culture and knowledge and economics. And that sounds like a crazy possibility, but I don't think it is. Yeah, Deborah's like me, me, me. She's like crazy. Yes, go on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because this did happen last year. Uh, there was a guy in America who um, was uh, his professor, or the professor that he thought was his professor. It, 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 lots of the stuff was on on uh, via video um, during the. It was it was during COVID, so a lot of it was online anyway. I will find the the information. It was Concord. It was Card. It was Concordia University in Canada, That's actually. It. That's yeah, and it, it was yeah. a, pro, a professor uh, Mark uh, Guignon, I think, uh, and it was an art history class. And professor, the professor was one of the most um, respected experts on uh, the history of Canadian art. It was a remotely delivered pandemic class. Yeah. Uh, and it was only when he didn't get an email response from his professor that he looked into it and found the obituary. And he'd actually been dead for about a year and a half. But of course, but what we academics know about the pandemic, I don't know about your all's universities, but the university for which I do some work was requiring every, all the lectures to be captured or pre-recorded. And under my academic contract, that material belonged to the university Same, and yeah. they could use it however they wanted. And I'm just thinking, wow, so everybody's lectures are all recorded now, and we have books, and we have articles, and we have this. And you think, I know for sure that right now, today, with available technology, readily available technology, probably a pretty passable chatbot of myself that responds to a student or a questioner like I would respond to them could be constructed without too much of an issue. 
Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's far from the truth. The question is, well, to, to what extent, again, with all the errors and, um, you know, hallucination issues and the black box issue and other issues that computer scientists have talked about quite a lot in the recent years, especially with the uh, uh, popularization of the GPT-4, to what extent that would actually represent you very, um, well, not without any errors and falsehoods is a mm. question uh, yeah, but course. again to what extent would universities care if this is a really uh, proper or improper representation of you if you were deceased mm. uh, god forbid but uh yeah that's um again i i agree with you it's a possibility definitely mm. I mean, there are certainly, I can certainly see some good uses or applications of, because oftentimes when I don't know, a role, a job gets handed over to a new person, a lot of information is lost, a lot of knowledge is lost, it has to be regained, there are inefficiencies there. Um, but so you can definitely see how AI could help with somehow transferring some of that useful knowledge to the next people taking over from someone who has passed away. Um, but yeah, I feel like there's going to be lots of things emerging where people are thinking, well, an AI trained on the data set from an actual person, you know, who's been doing this job for 20 or 30 years, can that AI just carry on doing the job of that person? And um Will the jobs that are lost in that process across the board um, be replaced by new opportunities uh, for younger people or just uh, have a bunch of dead laborers with live people without as much to do? Um, Deborah, do you have any thoughts about yeah, you, I, the, the, the Canadian situation, the Concordia University situation? and how far we've come on in just a couple of years for what's possible with that sort of scenario. Oh, yes. I mean, it's here. We're, we're living in it now, as we're seeing. But I think with with things like that, I think about whether or not that you'd have to go through an upgrade. So every five years, the AI would then have to be um, sort of uh, retrained, and then it would to 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 deal with differences in social acceptance and things like that so you were saying about biases and you know things like that so do, would they plug him in this this professor so that he's he's now sort of doing things differently in which case he's then a zombie yeah he's he not AI. the person he wouldn't represent the person any longer he would represent something different that might still somehow be identified with the person but wouldn't be historically accurate or and so yeah these and these questions of representation and identity and ownership and this is where I wanted to get back to inherit Deborah you mentioned inheritors and there's inheritors in terms of like the people who have access to something or who are affected by something after somebody passes away but the technical question of inheritance or ownership we have a lot of misconceptions Adina don't we about whether we can literally legally inherit various types of digital remains from family members, for example. Uh, yes, indeed. And that's, well, 
that is another uh, terribly complicated and complex area. And again, depends on where you look at. So even uh, in the UK, you'll, you'll have a different answer if you looked at the Scots law versus the English and Welsh law because of the differences in succession and property in particular. So it's how uh, a legal system conceives property because property is mostly what uh, in most countries could be transmitted on death. Otherwise, if it's something else, like something quite personal, then it can't. But another problem that we, we do have in English law is that uh, traditionally intangibles, pure intangibles, couldn't be a form, strictly speaking, of property or types of property that exist in, in, in English law. And that was one, one of the issues with, with the data as well in the personal they're saying data. it's not tangible they're saying it's not tangible it's or not that it tangible. doesn't have value it doesn't meet those two tests of tangibility and value uh well it depends on the on the case uh, case that you look at but tangibility was one of the one of the key requirements uh, and excludability as well so if you if you can exclude others from a possession of a certain a thing then that that's property um and a, a type of property under English law, but if you can't, as we as we can't in, in terms of information, information is problematic not just in English law, but in many legal systems, uh, information per se or personal data cannot be considered property and therefore cannot be passed on onto heirs. And then in some legal systems, you have um, provisions that pure uh, person. Uh, uh, well, a personality or the things that are very personal to the deceased can also not be considered property and transmitted on death, like personal contracts, for example, that end on death. And some, some of that we saw in Germany, again, in the case that you do mention in the book from 2018 in Facebook, uh, the question was whether personal contracts could be inherited or not. And there, of course, the court, the, the, the Supreme Court took a different view saying that, yes, it can be inherited. Uh, yes, but we, they said they, they, could have, they could inherit the teenage daughter's Facebook account or certainly access to yes. it, um, which which had been at the first couple times been pushed back. But then the highest court said, sure, yes. And then the judge said something that was super controversial to a lot of us. He said, the stuff in this account, this data, this digital data, isn't any different than letters. And if the yeah. parents could inherit letters, like a box of letters, then this is pretty much the same thing. But like you're saying, digital data, it's infinitely replicable and you know scalable and transmissible and you know like there's it has all of those qualities that mean that it can go everywhere and then how can you say somebody owns something here when it's replicated in so many other places and accessible to so many other people yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I did disagree with with the letter uh, analogy, and for for many years I've I've tried to, been trying to explain why why this is wrong for for the reasons you've mentioned, but also for the reasons of uh, the communication online being. Uh, not not just relating to two individuals, but potentially a massive number of individuals in third persons and revealing their sensitive, sensitive information and data. And the, the, the sheer vol volume of that is just incredible. So I think this, this analogy was wrong and I dis still disagree with, with the judgment, but that's what, 
one example. We haven't had a similar test in, the, in English law in the UK and elsewhere in many other countries. So, so that's unfortunate. So um, We need also, more dramatic things to happen. We need more high profile, like problematic things exactly. to happen. Not wishing, not wishing ill and, and suffering on anyone, but without sort of a, a big situation that yeah. really then becomes a case law then then we're kind of it's hard to move it's hard to move forward deborah what do you think about this because like adina's saying it doesn't just you, you can't look at people's data in isolation the dead stay in their social the dead's data stay in their social networks so for example like apple did said here are the legacy contact settings for iphone you can't access any financial information. You can't access any password information. You can't access any of those informations, but you can access the messages and the mail and all these other things that involve data of, like Adina said, it could be hundreds or even thousands of other people. And a lot of those people are still living. And so, yeah, what what are your thoughts on this connectedness and how we should be thinking about that with the d data of the deceased? I think it's really difficult because it is it is fundamentally different. Uh, I, sort of through my research, I interviewed uh, 40 uh, digital inheritors, as I call them. And I think it isn't until you understand what this, I, I don't want to call it data, but what these messages and memories mean to people that you then start to see the ramifications from digital inheritance and i i sort of at the end of of, of um, my research i sort of concluded that this digital digital memories and messages contain the essence of the dead in a way that physical objects do not so that essence of the dead then then brings into question again about the persona of the dead and, and the ongoing uh, effect that that then has on the living. And it is this ramification. So if it's just a letter between two people, it, it is a communication between those, those people. So if you have a WhatsApp group, and the WhatsApp group, as we know with WhatsApp, it's, it's conversational. It, it has more of a conversational sort of um, feel to it. And that is, WhatsApp messages um, were, the, were the type of digital messages that most of my participants found the most precious. Okay. And, and that's got the essence of the relationship and it also contains the essence perhaps of others. And so there's so many concepts and perspectives that try to capture this. Some people use the word in terms of modern selfhood, fidgetal, like, uh, you know, kind of physical plus digital. Patrick Stokes in his book, Digital Souls, says that our digital personae are not like somehow separate to us. Our digital presentation is part of our face. It's part of our face. And, and he talks about the notion of distributed self 
selfhood that, you know, I am here sitting in my room here, but I am appearing in the two of your spaces on your screens within your environment as a kind of distributed selfhood across these different locations. Now this is live and this is in vivo, but you know, but there are little bits of yourself distributed in all sorts of people's devices and all sorts of different locations and all sorts of different servers. And this is, it's becoming increasingly hard to say that these artifacts, remains, legacies, messages, memories, whatever you want to call them, aren't representative of a kind of personhood, whether it rises to the level of intellectual property or not. And sometimes it does as well. Sometimes digital remains that are hard to get at, or we have trouble permission at, you know, or getting permission to access. Sometimes there is intellectual property there that under current law, the next of kin ought to be able to inherit it, but there's all sorts of, but then they inherit a whole bunch of other stuff as well that might also impinge on other people, living persons' privacy, living persons who have the right to expect that the terms and conditions that they signed up for in terms of expecting privacy on a platform are going to be adhered to. But if you carte blanche give somebody access via, a, for example, an Apple device, in service of being getting a whole of being able to access a deceased person's digital material, you're accessing a whole lot of other people's digital material too, who haven't consented to that. And that's such a thorny, tricky, sticky territory that the dead can't be considered outside of their social networks online. Yeah, I think, uh, Elaine, I think you mentioned that in your previous book as well, in The Old Ghost in the Machine, and we've discussed, and uh, all of us have, I think, uh, talked about that in our research in different ways, the issue of granularity yeah. and what we proposed in terms of those services, legacy contacts, etc., and how to what uh, level of granularity they would need to go in order to, to be able to... Um, properly cater uh, for, for all of the different uh, layers and nuances that you've just mentioned in terms of the privacy of the deceased, privacy of the surviving family and the next of kin, but also hundreds and thousands of, of other people. And if I just may add, when, when we discussed the, the question of property, I think, uh, and I, I would like to relate that to, to Peter Stokes and the philosophy. So um, what we had in, in traditional uh, law and, you know, legal discourse and this discipline is old and traditional uh, let's face it and all the conceptions of pro property are based on a very old philosophical thought of Jeremy Bentham John Locke etc they uh, provided justifications for different forms of property and utilitarianism labor theory etc what we have now here cannot in any way be compared or analogized with property and we have to use these new theories like Peter Stokes, like other philosophers, other scholars in humanities and social science to be able to inform the law better. And this is what I also discuss in my in my book and in my theories of postmortem privacy and postmortal privacy. I borrow from the new conceptions of the selfhood yes. of the digital remains. And I really disagree with my colleagues who can be very traditional, especially those in the, say, land law area, succession and probate. They always think uh, in very old terms, in uh, centuries and, and millennia old principles uh, of, of property and succession, and they try to use it to explain digital remains. And that's just completely wrong and just so uh, 
broad brush, such a broad brush approach, completely, completely unacceptable. I agree with view. you so much. I mean, there, there's, if, if anything else, there's been a step change where it's a very clear situation of the old conceptualizations. And as you say, centuries and millennial old uh, concepts of things like property and succession, just not being useful, not being applicable, not being workable in this case, because they don't fit. It doesn't fit. you know. And no matter how much you try to shove that square peg into a round hole, it is not going to work. So it really needs to be stripped back uh, and sort of start from the new first principles. What, what are the new modern applicable first principles to this context in this situation? And, and I think you're right. There's a lot of sludginess or stuckness in the mentality of not just some, but regulators as well. I think, you know, regulators and legislators, and and that's super challenging. And it can also fall into it when people, uh, everyday people who are not involved in regulation, but who are just making assumptions about planning or assumptions about what they need to think about, they too are basing their ideas about what they need to worry about or what's possible or not possible based on old concepts. And then when they cannot access something they think they can, for ex- that or they something doesn't belong to them that they assumed did, they get tripped up. Uh- I'm... Mm. If I might just add uh, and mention the work of Professor Michael Bernhack and Dr. Tal Moores in that area, and that, what, what you just explained is pretty much the postmortem privacy paradox or the inverted postmortem privacy paradox. So, what do users expect that will happen to their data postmortem? What they actually do, and and vice versa, and how much, uh, how little access they allow, and then they, a lot of them, wish that they had uh, given more access to the to their families. And just to again uh, plug in some uh, some new research that we did this here, actually, Dr. Morris and I, and it will be published soon, so I can't really uh, disclose everything, but we surveyed nearly 2,000 UK residents on these questions, and what we found was really, really interesting, and what we found really reinforces postmortem privacy, inverted postmortem privacy paradox, and evidence is that users do actually very much care about what happens to all of that, but also evidence is what you mentioned in the book and what uh, we've also uh, discussed previously uh, is that they don't really make wills, most of them, not even 50% of them. And they and we're uh, talking about physical wills as well, right? Physical so, I mean, wills. Like wills, any will. <laughs> and yeah, they barely, barely use uh, legacy contacts. So we don't really only have anecdotes now. We will have like proper data and evidence finally because of this uh, Leverhulme funded project that we've had but yeah stay tuned for that will be published soon oh congratulations I'm very happy that there's some really good data coming out on that that shows what is happening uh, in the UK at the moment Deborah did you have um I think it's really interesting. I mean, I'll be really excited to read that. Um, but I think it's it's interesting how we've sort of, we started off talking about sort of terminology that's used. And I think we haven't actually just thought about the word immortality in this, where we started and we talked about digital immortality. There is no such thing, no. not even for our wonderful friend, Mr. Musk. That, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even he isn't going to be able to 100% assure immortality. It's a, a very interesting thing that came out of my research was um, was interviews, uh, in-depth interviews. And the word immortality and legacy 
were only used in my interviews by my male participants or people who identified as males. And I find that absolutely, well, I find it really interesting. It's um, so interesting the number of companies that startups that have cropped up in this space. And if you did an analysis of every startup that had ever come into the death tech space about digital legacies or digital remains that used words like immortality, it'd probably be almost all of them because, uh, and, and so, and there was the assumption that this is something that would really appeal to people, uh, the wider marketplace, that there would be a sort of anxiety about not being live, able to live forever, that, you know, the market would hope that technology could solve. And perhaps this fantasy is not so widespread as those uh, founders <laughs> assumed. Maybe it's just you. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, no, it's not. I mean, obviously all of us, you know, have a hard time wrapping our head around the prospect of death and perhaps no greater issue than wrapping our heads around the prospect of our own deaths, I think. But there's a difference between that and focusing on or fantasizing about ideas of immortality or eternal influence or eternal societal participation. I think fears of non-being and desires for immortality feel like those are two different things to me. I think sometimes those are mistaken, I don't know, or, or, or confused in some founders' minds. I'm conscious of time, and it, this is such a wide territory, and we've covered only a very small part of it. But thinking about this moment in time and thinking about the near to medium term, um, what is it that each of you really would like the everyday person to be realizing or have a more acute awareness of within this territory that we've been describing? What do you think it would be useful and helpful and valuable if more people realized something about this area? What would that be? Adina, what, what's your thought? So I think uh, it's again something I've written about uh, a lot uh, and um uh, many uh, colleagues in the community have also been uh, discussing and, and we, we agree on that is uh, a starting point would be to perhaps consider the tools that we already have out there in the um, social media space in particular. And there we have the leading examples of, well, uh, can we say better examples? Uh, they, they they do have their many vices, but in this space, they've at least tried to do something uh, more or less reasonable. So uh, Meta or Facebook and Instagram, uh, Apple and Google with uh, inactive account manager and the legacy contacts. So I think if, if uh, people could just uh, consider those, play with them, take a look at them, if it's not too distressing for them and make some provisions. I can't promise that they would be honored on their death. Uh, they would by technology if someone reports their death and triggers those services. But uh, in, in certain cases, there could be, again, uh, conflicts between different um, surviving um, mm -hmm. uh, family members, the next of kin, successors, etc., however we call them. But I, I also think that in most cases, they, that wouldn't lead to an actual uh, legal case or, or a lawsuit. So I think it would be useful for users to, to consider that. Um, apart from that, I think we we can't really burden them that much because there's so much that others who are in power need to do. And I think what, what we really need is, is a, and what we've been calling for in this community for many, uh, well, for 
decades now, is that they do something to help the, the everyday user, to help the people and clarify this situation and not just help the people, but also help solicitors, help the legal profession, because they also struggle in, in our uh, work. We interviewed um, solicitors from, from the UK and they, they confirmed that they, they have issues in, in navigating the space. and They need legal certainty. And as you said, they're also expecting a high level, high profile court case that would potentially uh, involve a celebrity because they could afford such a case and and clarify some some of the issues that we discussed. So I think uh, as as a lawyer, I I, I would um, just um, argue for for definitely more regulation and a law reform. But for everyday users, as I just 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 to see what's out there already, to think about that, to have conversations with you know their their friends, their family about what what they think uh, should happen and how they can ensure that, that that's honored on, on their death. Um, yeah. There was some, I think you remember that piece of research that was carried out by Queen Mary a couple of years ago about just how confused some of the professionals in this space are and the percentage of people that said, oh, I'm running into problems with this. I don't understand. Uh, but for the everyday user, as you say, there's inactive account manager on Google. There's legacy contact on Meta, i.e. Facebook, Instagram. And there's legacy contact at the sort of device level uh, for Apple users. Um, and so those are the main uh, kind of platform provided uh, provisions at the moment. And beyond that, it's about conversation and understanding, safeguarding, backing up in locally controllable devices like hard drive, important information or family photos that are stored in the cloud. You should assume that if things are password protected or double password protected or secondary verification, tertiary verification type situations, if there's a password, you should assume that your loved ones won't be able to get hold of something before you should assume that they can. It is not a matter of just toddling along to the Apple store with no provision being made and assuming something's going to happen or making a call and unlocking something. So people should almost assume the worst for any password protected accounts and devices. And if there is important stuff practically or sentimentally that's locked behind those kinds of protections, um, they should make some specific provision for how people are going to be able to get hold of that information they need. They should not assume anything in the exactly. current climate that we have. Yeah, absolutely. For platforms, I think they should make it a lot easier to for uh, people to download archive of uh, uh, information that they already can see, like on Twitter or Facebook or what. It's, it's not that easy at the moment for there to be that download within a specific period of time so that people who are emotional stakeholders can get, for example, a, a Twitter history that they need that was that's not something that's a setting on the platform. Um, only the user can do that for themselves. And if that user is dead, then um, uh, then they obviously can't do that. Uh, but I have really strong feelings myself about giving people loved ones carte blanche access to the behind the scenes, private messages, direct messages, you know, that involve the data of a whole lot of other people. I have a lot of reservations about that. That's the area that I really want to see better clarified and understood how the fortunes and the privacy and the rights of the living are not impinged upon by policies and processes with respect to the data of the dead. And it's a hard problem to fix, but we need to fix it. Deborah, what about you? What do you really want people to be more aware of in terms of the everyday person? 
I, I think it's exactly as you just said it, both of you. It's awareness. I think some people are just, they don't think about it because they don't want to think about death and dying. They then don't think about, well, that is going to happen and therefore get your head out of the sand in those circumstances. Um, and I think by this, probably think about somebody else so that it, would you want access to it? So switch the sort of emphasis really from yourself and think, well, if somebody else died, yes, you would want to see photographs and things like that. So it's awareness. But I think what you've both just been saying is it speaks volumes in the fact that both of, both of you have mentioned the companies that are at least trying to address this. But all of those platforms are accidental digital afterlife platforms. Mm -hmm. They weren't intended to ever deal with this. They're playing catch up and they're doing an okay job at playing catch up. Where the emphasis is for me is intentional digital afterlife platforms. Mm -hmm. Now, these are the platforms that are, that are in business to create a, a digital afterlife for someone. But they don't, the, the provisions that they provide are almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's about that awareness, about making those platforms aware of the sensitivity of what they're creating. Um, because the ones that are doing something are the accidental ones, which doesn't make sense to me. So, mm -hmm. but from the from the everyday user, definitely awareness. I don't think people are aware until the something happens, and then it causes this real second loss of, which I call it, um, the the fear of second loss, where you think that you're going to lose something very precious that is within your technology. Uh, and that could be something, a memory or message of, of somebody that has already died. So it's being aware of the technology that's out there and the software that's out there, really. Yeah. And for me, and in, 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 in concert with something that Adina said as well, that those are emotional and sentimental and psychological harms that could occur uh, that, Deborah, you're emphasizing. But I think the prospect of or the possibilities for financial harms are mounting. I think that that if something isn't changed about regulation, if something, if digital watermarking to clearly identify material as associated with a deceased person, which will probably involve some element of blockchain to be able to track and identify uh, um, artifacts that are associated with a particular deceased individual, unless there are clear ways of identifying digital remains as opposed to the data of living users. Um, without that piece of technology and us getting that, it's kind of hard for me to see how we're going to be able to sort the rest of it out. Like if you don't know who is who <laughs> in a digital environment, what represents someone living, what represents something dead, then there's all sorts of scope for fraud, for impersonation, for exploitation, for various kinds of harms in that department. And so I think that that is going to be a real, really critical area in the in the near future. Um, and it might take something I, going desperately wrong to, to, to fix it. Could I just make a, a, something there? Patrick Stokes actually came up with second loss. My thought about that is the fear of second loss, which I built on because of Patrick Stokes coming out with this second yeah. loss thought thought. And, and second, 
second loss, which is a digital uh, loss, I do agree that, that we're going to see more and more of this because mm-hmm. more and more uh, of us have got these memories and messages on on technology. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so um, I cannot thank you guys enough. It's been a long time since we three sat in a, a room, a physical room together. I'm really happy that we've been able to sit in this digital room together and it's whetted my appetite uh, to see you more and talk to you more because there are a lot of things happening. And Adina, I'm excited by what you're talking about, about the upcoming project in the U and I can't wait for that uh, paper to land. Uh, Deborah. I can't wait to see what you're going on to do at the, at the OU and I'm sure we'll be seeing one another uh, very soon at some future upcoming gathering virtual or otherwise. Um, but I just really want to thank you so much for being my conversation partners today in this incredibly important uh, space. And I'd like to thank you, Elaine, for your book, actually, not just this book, the previous book, where you inform a more general public about our work and about uh, you just explaining it in a in a beautiful way, uh, developing the story and just, uh, you know, t- getting some of the things that we discussed that you have thought about to uh, the everyday user. So I think that's really, really invaluable. Thanks for that. Oh, well, that book's really close to my heart. Thank you for saying so. It's just so lovely to talk to other people that get so uh, excited about the death tech space and so, so, so sort of enthusiastic about bringing this to light to other people. So, yeah, well, I think it's a necessary, it's a necessary job that we're doing. It's an important job that we're doing. And I think that that's becoming clear by the day why that is the the case. I don't think we're going to be languishing in the shadows any longer for very long. This is Elaine Caskett, and you've been listening to the Reboot Podcast. Sorry that it's taken me a little while to get this one out. I know there have been some gaps. One of my New Year's resolutions for 2024 is to remember that done is better than perfect. So it's been a bit since I had this conversation with Dr. Deborah Bassett and Dr. Adina Harbinia. Really enjoyed it, and I know that it is just one of many that I will have with these women and other people in the death online research community throughout 2024, because as I say, this is an extraordinarily important moment where, as I've always contended, using our mortality is an amazing lens in the digital age for understanding so much about privacy, about the power of big technology, and about the implications of the choices that we make with our devices and our accounts all the time, and with disclosure of our own and other people's data. Information about both of my guests is in the show notes and about their books. Look forward to a few more installments about the death tech space because 2024 just does seem like such a critical and important year to be speaking about these issues. See you next time.